this evening, we'll be thinking about the uh, prayer in the book of Ephesians in chapter 3. We'll be there in just a moment, but before we uh, start, I want to read a passage from the Old Testament, just as uh, background to get us started. I don't know whether Paul had this in mind, consciously or unconsciously, when he wrote this prayer out. Now, we'll just say, as I start off here, I consider the prayer in chapter 3 to be the loftiest prayer that a redeemed man on this earth prayed that's recorded in the Word of God. Again, that's not, it's not loftier than the Lord's Prayer. And there are some tremendous prayers in the heavenlies when we get this all behind us that exceed them. But as far as prayer goes on this earth, among men who are redeemed, this one is the highest. But I'm going to be in, I just want to read a passage to you. You don't need to turn there. It's in Second Chronicles chapter 6. I'm going to start in chapter 6 in the end verses and then go to chapter 7. The situation here is the temple has just been built. Solomon has completed it, and they're having a dedication. Solomon built a, a platform so that he could be heard by everybody, gets up on the platform and prays this prayer of dedication for the temple. Um, we are in the final verses. This is in verse 40. He stops. He's finishing up his prayer. And he says this, Now, O oh my God, I pray, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. And he says this, Now, therefore, rise, O Lord, O Lord God, to your resting place, you in the ark of your might. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation, and let your godly ones rejoice in what is good. O Lord God, do not turn away your face, the face of your anointed. Remember your loving kindness to your servant David. Chapter 7, a grand moment in the history of the Old Testament. Now, when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. The priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because of the glory of the Lord filled the house or filled the Lord's house. This is important for tonight. And all the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down, and the glory of the Lord upon the house bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground. And they worshiped and they gave praise to the Lord saying, truly he is good. Truly his loving kindness is everlasting. It's interesting to note the contrast between that situation and the situation at Mount Sinai when the law was given and the glory of God came down on that mountain. On that mountain, it was a terrifying event. On this, this moment, instead of falling down in fear, the result of the glory of God in the temple was that those who watched that glory come down said, the Lord is good and his loving kindness. It's true. It's, it's actually true. His loving kindness is everlasting. Now, we'll come back to that in just a moment, but let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> I'll be come to give you thanks for your glory. In some sense, so absolutely incomprehensible to us. I come tonight to ask for strength to speak of wonderful things, unseen things, incomprehensible things. 
And we're coming and asking you by your spirit to enable us to understand and to enter into your truth. And we trust you for that. We would pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Back over in Ephesians chapter 3. We'll get there in just a moment. But last week we were talking about a prayer that was in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul prays a lot. And this, this book of Ephesians also covered up with prayer. He starts with prayer, with a song of praise to God. He then prays for the people the people in Ephesus. He then gives some more instruction. He prays again for them. He'll pray another time before the end. It's, it just, it's saturated with prayer, and it's only six chapters long. We've been trying to ask ourselves, what does it mean to pray without ceasing, and how can we learn something about how Paul sees things? He is saturated with a knowledge of the will of God. Merck, two weeks ago, we were thinking about his prayer in Colossians. And in that prayer, he asked that this might be so, that that God would give us a spirit or would give us a capacity to to fill us with the knowledge of his will, this great program, with what's going on. This has filled up Paul's thinking. And now he is praying for the Ephesians out of that. Now, when we had that prayer, let me just remind you of what was in that prayer. He prays that they would be given a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that God would show them something in their heart and mind. We, we think about it in their mind, but he would show it to them in their inward being, that they would comprehend the truth of God. They had it in front of them, but they would comprehend it. And he says when that took place, there's three things he, he, he expected the result come out of that. Number one, that they would have hope. Number two, and I'm, I'm, I'm abbreviating this. Number two, that they would comprehend the love of God and in in the inheritance that he has provided for us and what we mean to him. The third thing, he says, that, that you might know the power of God. You might, you might comprehend the power of God. You might see what's at work on your behalf. Right? He finishes that by making a statement about the church. All right? He finishes up as he's describing that power. He tells us it's the same power that raised Christ from the dead. It is the same power that has taken him to heaven. It is the same power he has been given at the right hand of the Father. Right? And then he speaks about the church. He speaks about how the church is this. He says the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Okay, so that's that's where he finishes that prayer. He's then going to describe what God has done. So that's the first way that we have an expression of who the what is the church. This book is all about how the universal church works. How, what, what is this body of Christ which will one day glorify his name? He goes on to say some other things about the church. In chapter 2, uh, there are many different things he's saying, but one key point is this. He is, it is the family of God. He calls it the household of God. That's, we should understand that as the family of God. And so they're the family of God. But after he speaks about the family of God, he moves into another metaphor. And he says that the church is the temple or the, the dwelling place of God and the Spirit, a temple. We are a temple, right? Now, again, let me just note that the purpose of that temple, and it's important for his next prayer, the purpose of that temple is to make the invisible and incomprehensible God both meetable, touchable, visible, and comprehensible. Eternal God doesn't need a place to sit. I mean, he's, he's everywhere present. He's not in need of a place to rest as, uh, as Solomon prayed. 
He doesn't need that. But we need that because he is the invisible God and he is the incomprehensible God. And we have to have a place where we can see him. And the the temple was a place where he could meet with men so that we could interact with him. He says that the church, that's the body that he has on this earth, the people that belong to him on this earth, what are they to him? They are the temple of God, the place where the incomprehensible God becomes comprehensible. What will be required for that? And that's where we get to the prayer is in chapter 3. And I want to read through it, uh, and we're going to read the whole thing. It's, it's probably one of the more lengthy prayers that Paul offers, but in verse 14, this is chapter 3, verse 14, he begins. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God." Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Begins by bowing the knee before the Father. It's interesting Paul would put it that way. Again, in the Word of God, Um, there's not a lot of emphasis on position in prayer. People pray in all sorts of different positions. But the, the issue with position is this, that we are, as human beings, we express ourselves with our bodies. We do. We know if somebody's happy or sad by the way they are responding. We know whether they are, um, whether they're accepting our relationship or they're rejecting us by how they reject, how they use their body. It's just part of our life. When Paul comes to pray, again, you can you pray in your heart. There's no question about that. But what I do with my body also has to express, it should express what's in the heart. Paul's going to bow down. I think he's going to have to bow down on this one because, as I said, I believe this is the most, um, it's the loftiest prayer in the New Testament that, again, is offered by a redeemed man on this earth. And... It's going to take audacious faith to ask God to actually do this. He is not talking about a group of seminary graduates or, you know, a group of people. That, this church is only probably 15 years old. They came out of occultism. These are regular people who have all the same passions that you have and I have, who faced all the same temptations that you do and I do. The Roman world was a dirty world. It was a lying world. It was a cheating world. It was a nasty place to live. It had some advantages. Again, we we, we sing the praises of the Roman Empire, but it was a nasty place. When you came to living for Jesus Christ, and those people had been in that. They had known that. They had... They had it in their souls. Now, Paul's going to pray something for them that that group of people ultimately, this is the height of the prayer, is what? That they might be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now, let me say as I start 
that I'm going to primarily regard this prayer as a group prayer instead of as an individual prayer. It's, it's very difficult to tell when Paul uses the you in the plural, whether he's talking about each of us or all of us. It could be that, again, what's in there is each of us. But in this prayer, we have an advantage because at one point he says that you might comprehend with all the saints. And we're going to be talking about that in just a moment. That this, this kind of puts the blanket over all of us. That the, what he has in mind for us to experience is experienced as a group. All right? This knowledge of the will of God, that, or of the love of God particularly, that comes later on in the prayer, and I'll say this now so I don't forget it, um, is not the kind of experience that D.L. Moody talks about when the love of God just poured over him in, in a private experience there, and he just felt this tremendous experience of the love of God. And there are others who have expressed similar things. There is, I am not speaking against that. If that happens to you, praise God. I'm all for it. But that isn't what Paul has in mind here. And if you go down that route, you're going to miss what he's actually saying. This is an easy prayer to misunderstand. Right? It's just easy to, to miss what he's actually saying. So what is he saying? Well, let's go back over it. Paul's prayers, they always go the same route. He first of all gives us the essence of his prayer. This is what I'm praying. And then he tells us, why he wants that to take place, all right? What is the essence of the prayer, all right? Well, the essence of the prayer is found in verse 16. He's praying to the Father. He bowed the knees before the Father, and he says that he would grant to you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man. Okay, the first thing he says that he wants to have happen is you and I to be invigorated spiritually. Right? That's what he's saying. To be strengthened with power is to be empowered with power. But the idea of the power here is to be invigorated. To rise up above being cold and dead and, and, and unable, unable to do what we need to do. To be strengthened so that there is spiritual vitality which enables the purpose of God to be fulfilled in his own. So that's, he says, first of all, that you would be strengthened, empowered. And that power comes by the Spirit of God. That's important. Right? The Spirit of God is the one who brings this to us. He is the one in the last prayer we talked about last week who brings the knowledge of the truth to us. He is the one that opens that up to us. He is the one that makes our heart understand it. But now he says this, that same Spirit is the one who comes in and strengthens. When we look like Christ, it is the fruit, it is the outworking, it is the finished product of the Spirit doing His work. It's the fruit of the Spirit, because He alone can bring that to pass. Paul understood that. One thing we saw last year as we were, we were thinking about that, that matter of faith, you really don't start down the path of faith that you figure this out, that unless God does something, it ain't going to get done. Because in me, in my flesh, apart from God, apart from what he has done for me in Christ by the Spirit, there isn't anything good, nothing, zero, none. So Paul has to, he has to pray for these people that they'll be strengthened. And it's a very practical thing he's, he's praying for, as we'll see in just a moment. Okay, so back to that, back to the passage that 
he would grant you according to the riches of glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit. All right. And that's where? In the inner man. And, and I want to point this out because all through church history, there has been a tendency for people to want the spirit of God like the sorcerer in Samaria who wanted the Spirit of God so he could do powerful things. The temptation to, to seek God's power so that I can be powerful is just incredible. And Paul is praying for this whole group of people. Again, there's, I'm not talking about you, but I'm talking about he's praying for the Ephesian church. And what he wants to have happen is God to, to strengthen them. But the strengthening happens in the, in the soul, in the inner man. In the, in the place that's inside. It's that place where a person has to be very strong, very courageous, if you use the Old Testament term for it. He's going to have to take steps. Because what's out ahead of him, you remember, when he gets finished with his prayer, he's going to start telling the Ephesian church what they have to be on this earth. Read it. It starts off with, some really powerful words, which we're going to think about in just a moment. He says there's four words in chapter 4. If we're going to walk the way we ought to walk, he says you're going to have to have humility. All right? Now, I don't mind telling you. I, I, I might be worse than other people. But overcoming pride is a huge problem. The tendency to want to be at the center instead of the Lord being at the center, it's huge. The tendency of wanting my way instead of your way is huge, right? Pride's a big problem. If I'm going to have humility, it's going to take a strengthening of the Spirit of God. I'm going to have to have patience. What's that? Every day we bump into each other, right? Bump, 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 bump. And Paul says that if, if you're going to do what you're supposed to be, if you're going to live in a way that honors the Lord, you're going to have to have patience. Then you're going to have to have, um, or you've to have meekness. Then you're going to have to have patience. Then you're going to have to have tolerance. You've got to put up with each other. We won't go to all those passages right now. All, or those words, but we want to note that out ahead is the real world of what happens in daily life. He's not talking about a contemplative life. That's why, again, although, again, I have nothing against contemplative life or those times alone with the Lord where he speaks to you. I don't, I'm not arguing against that. Paul never mentions that here. He's talking to the church about what we are, and we have a responsibility while we are on this earth to human beings who ride around us. There is a responsibility. Paul speaks about that at the very beginning of the book of Romans. I am under obligation to all men, both to the Jews and to the Greeks. Why? He had a message of life that had to reach that group of people. He had it in his grasp. And while he was on this earth, it was his duty to get it out there. And so he has that responsibility. We are the church. We are the body of Christ. What's the Lord doing tonight? He's building that church. How's he going to build it? We're going to build it for the body of Christ. Now, again, he has to do what we can't do. But it's going to happen through us, right? What is the Lord's purpose in the temple? We'll talk about that in just a moment. Well, if that's going to be fulfilled, we have to be certain things. So we're going to have to be strengthened. We're going to be strengthened. And so he says that, that that's what I want to have happen. Why does he want to have it happen? Now, I realize I'm going through this very quickly, but I, I sat there this afternoon and said, Lord, can we get to the other end of this? We're going to, all right? So we, we're just hitting the highlights of what's going on, but what has to happen? What does God have to do? Where do I need strengthened in the inner man? All right? 
This is where I'm going to refer back to that, um, that passage in the Old Testament. When Solomon completed his, temp, or his prayer for the temple, in his closing moments, he says this, Now arise, O Lord, to your resting place. That's an interesting thing. He called the temple a resting place. A place, again, he's using a human term that we would, we would understand. Um, they use that, that term today, um, the happy place. I'm going to go to my happy place. Well, it's just a different way of saying your resting place. A place where you feel like you can let it down. You can, you can relax here. You can, you can set down the weights. Now, of course, God doesn't need to do that in one sense, but that's what it's, he's, it's the term that, that Solomon chose to use of God coming into his temple. The first thing that Paul asks for here is the Christ, the strengthening will end in, Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith. Now, Paul, is, his theology is real clear. When you came, became a Christian, Christ came into your life. He cannot at this point be praying that you would be strengthened so that Jesus could come in. That's all he's talking about. And I don't think that he's talking individually so much as he's talking to that group. He wants God to strengthen that group so that God, the Lord, again, and this is to use Hanley Mole's phrase for it, that he can be perfectly at home in your heart. Because the, the word just means to dwell there. That he might just come in and and relax there, if you would. Now, again, that's a silly word for us to use with regards to God because he's, he doesn't need to rest. But it is the same thought that, um, that Solomon used as he talked about this, this matter. That he, might, he might be at home in your heart. Now, how is it that God, the Lord, would feel at home in this group? Right? What would make him? Now, we could think all night about what can we do in order to get to a place? And we typically think in terms of, of well, we've got to clean up our act. <laughs> you know, let's, let's get our sin all confessed, which is a good idea. I mean, I've got nothing against that. But that's not where Paul goes. He doesn't go to that matter of cleansing, although that is important. What he's going to go to is this, that Jesus might be at home in our hearts, be at home at, in our group because we trust him. How about that? The Lord loves to be trusted. In order for that trust to be a reality, I have to overcome what I already trust. Isn't that right? I mean, this is why we need strengthened. Because in order to live by faith, to actually believe God with regards to what he says in his word, I'm going to have to discard other thoughts. And it's more than just a thought process. I have to be strong to do this. There isn't one person in this room, I don't think. I'm just guessing. I'm, I'm accusing. But anyway, I'm accusing me too. All right? Who hasn't been challenged on a verse that says it's all working together for good. God is working everything together for good to those that love him. That is an easy verse to say. That is a wonderful thing to believe. But in the rough and tumble of life, it sometimes is very difficult to grab hold of that, to, to put your confidence on it, 
that it, it, I can trust him for this. <laughs> How many times have you been in that place where you know that God said to do this and you know that that's going to take an act of faith, but you really aren't sure. What do you need? You need the strengthening of the Spirit of God to discard one thing and to, uh, to embrace something else. What is that? The Word of God in faith. All of us need that. And here's the point that Paul's making. When that takes place... That's pleasing to the Lord. We saw that last year. Faith, being trusted, pleases God. The sin of mankind, the thing that got us in this trouble, is the fact that in a temptation, in a garden, it started with, that moves beyond that, but it started with Eve being tempted to believe what the devil said was the path to life and to reject God's path to life. And she chose, she chose by an act of her own will to believe the devil. And she, she didn't get us into it. Adam decided to follow her and we're all in the mess. Okay, we are in a mess. But we are in a mess because of a choice, a thought choice. Since that time, Everything about this word, every time you obey Jesus, it has got to be an act of faith. It's more than just, I'm going to do the right thing. It's, I'm going to do the right thing because I trust him to enable me. I'm trusting him to work out what he promised to do. I have to go that route. I have to believe him for that. But when we do, when we do, it says that he's at home home in our hearts. Now, again, it's true for an individual, but Paul's thinking here about the church, that it could be a place where God would come in, where the Lord could come in and be at home here, not resisted. Not having you argue and my, me arguing in my heart as to which way we ought to go because we think maybe there's a better path. Not rejecting the idea of giving thanks and rejoicing because I don't know. I don't know if I can rejoice. See, every time you're challenged with regards to rejoicing, you're putting this, this big thing in there. Am I going to trust Jesus in what he said or am I going to believe these set of circumstances? You know, I know it takes a lot of strength to stay over here, right? Where's that strength come from? He says the Spirit of God has to come in here and he has to do that. Now, that's the first step in this. And, and we, we have to appreciate the wonderful pleasure that it brings to God to be trusted. It says, when a man turns from darkness to light, <laughs> one sinner that repents, and that's an act of faith, right? Just, that's part of the faith act. It causes joy in the presence of the angels. When one person gives up the lie of this world and comes and entrusts themselves into the hands of Jesus Christ. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. But that's only the first step. And most people are not so much concerned about that step. We like this next part, all right? The, co- the possibility of it is so, so in, uh, endearing. So here we go. Let's, let's look at the second thing he has to say. After he tells us that uh, he wants to, the Lord to dwell in our hearts through faith. That's in verse 17. At the end of verse 17, he says this, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. That you might know, that you might comprehend 
the love of God. Now, that's where Paul's going, but we won't, don't want to jump there too soon. That's where we make the mistake in the prayer. We jump to that conclusion that, well, he's praying that we would understand that. Well, he's praying for something else. If you think about that for just a moment, and you, you just isolate that, wouldn't that have fit better into the first prayer? The first prayer was that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. And wouldn't it have made sense if, you want, if Paul wanted them to know the love of God, to just pray that they would know the love of God. It's part of that, that knowledge which the Spirit of God alone can bestow on you. Paul doesn't go there. He puts it in this prayer. Now, that's his goal, that we should comprehend the love of God, but his path to that comprehension is a little different than we think. Where is the strengthening part? Where does it take strength in order to know the love of God? Well, it doesn't take strength to know the love of God. It takes strength to do what he spoke about at the very beginning, so that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of God. Now, what he's saying there, that you being rooted and grounded in love, again, he, he mixes a metaphor, but that's, that's all right for Paul. He can be us two different ones. The whole point is that you might be secured in him. You might be steadied in the Lord. Okay, that's, that's where he's after. But what is he talking about? What is the love that you might be rooted and grounded in love? We get a little confused here. You read through all that. I read through all these different commentaries, trying to find somebody that would help me explain it in a way that just comes across very quickly and very clearly. And I'm going to read, I don't like to read too much from books and stuff. But anyway, I'm going to read an extended passage from this Charles Erdman on his uh, commentary. It's a little brief commentary on the book of Ephesians. But he gets the point across, which is so important for us, and we'll build on it. All right, and he says this love. Now, they're talking about the love, the love that we've been rooted and grounded in, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Now, he's talking about that love. He says this love does not mean love for Christ or the love of Christ. But love in general, the Christian grace of love. This grace will result uh, from the indwelling presence of Christ and is indeed the fruit of the Spirit. One must be thoroughly established, and this is the point that Paul's making, one must be thoroughly established in love if he is um, to fully understand the love of Christ. We have to be established in love before we can understand the love of Christ, enter into the fullness of it, all right? It must not be a mere passing emotion, not a weak sentiment. It must be an abiding principle of life. It must be the very element in which one lives. It must be the spring and basis of all action and thought. Now, what's he talking about? That's, that's quite something. He's saying this, And Paul is getting at this. He wants that church to be rooted and grounded in the principle of love. He wants them to actually enter into a realm of love and live there. Not in moments when there's particularly great need, but on a continuous basis. Just like he wants us to trust the Lord on a continuous basis so that the Lord is pleased to be with us, he wants this to take place. And the, comp- the 
the idea that he has in mind is that you and I live in that atmosphere and love each other. That's, the, that's where we need strengthened. We don't need strengthened to understand or to comprehend the love of God. We need strength to actually ourselves live in love. And then as we live in love, we comprehend the love of God. That's, that's his, his train of thinking. Do they got that? That unless we experience love together, we can't understand the love of God. And that's where he's going to go in the next part of the book. He's going to line out how we have to live. And, and I've often said, again, up here, and I, I want to continue to pound on this, that you can't know the love of God unless you're in a church. In some sense, you've got to be with other believers. Why? Because it's in the experience together that we experience, we know the love of God. The way he's thinking about it here. It is as we are interacting with one another. Uh, you can't learn the love of God by the medieval approach of retiring to a quiet spot and meditating on the love of God. That may lead you to a place where you are able to write theoretically about the love of God, but you will not comprehend it according to what Paul's saying here. The place you comprehend, you come to understand, we come to understand the love of God is as we love one another. As we actually express that to one another. Now, what what are we thinking about practically? Think about just the, the whole issue, let's say, of forgiveness. All right? There's, there's a point of love, right? Christians forgive. It's just part of, it's, it's part of the, the nature of Christians to do it. Indeed, Paul does argue, and the Lord himself argues, that if that's not true of you, if you can't forgive, you probably are not one of his. Because you may have trouble with it. You may have a time when you, you're struggling to forgive, but you will come to it because you have been forgiven. And if you understand what it is to be forgiven, you will finally forgive. But think about it for just a moment, the act of forgiveness. Have you ever been in the place where you are the person who needs to be forgiven? And you have to humble yourself to ask for forgiveness. Not an easy place, right? Not an easy place. And you begin to comprehend, because you're in a real experience with another person. And you are coming to this. And you, you, you know you don't deserve that forgiveness, but you're asking for it anyway. And in that experience, you begin to know what it is to be in the place to receive the love of Christ. Because it's in that place where you know very well in this relationship, you have no right to their forgiveness. But in the relationship with God, you had no right to his forgiveness. But somehow that remains abstract, and this becomes very concrete. Right? Suppose you're on the other end of that. You're the person that that does the forgiving. You also learn, right? You're going to learn. How are you going to learn? Um, Forgiveness is one of those principles you have to study out in the Word of God. Always involves a loss. It always involves a loss. See, when you forgive somebody, you let it go. Something has hurt you, and you're going to let it go. In letting it go, you lose something. 
There is always a loss in forgiveness. Now, the loss that you experience in a forgiveness, most of the time we have to forgive somebody, it's so petty that it, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference. But nevertheless, you sense that, you know it. And it's at that point that you begin to understand that before the Lord could come to me, before the Lord could reach me, there were some dark waters that had to be crossed. There was some real loss involved in all this. You know the passage in, in Philippians where he talks about how he came. He didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And we can read through that, and he came to this earth, and he lost. He went all the way from the throne of heaven to losing everything as a human being on this earth so that I could know him. There's an old hymn by Iris Sankey. Uh, I don't know if you know whoever reads anymore, but uh, there were 90 and 9 on the, you know, I can't remember what the title of it is. But he says this at one point. I think it's, it's real important. None of the ransom, he says, none of the ransom ever knew. And we don't know how deep were the waters crossed or how dark was the night which the Lord passed through ere he found the sheep that was lost. Now, we can't comprehend that. But when we have the opportunity to forgive another person, we get some sense of the idea that forgiveness involves loss, and you begin to understand and comprehend something more of the depth of the love of God for you. When you because everything about love is sacrificial. It is interesting to go back to that passage in the Old Testament where he's talking about the temple, and God comes to him after that prayer and says, this is what it is. I've chosen this place as a a place of sacrifice. I've chosen that building as a place of sacrifice. And my mind, my heart will be there perpetually towards the place of sacrifice. Now again, that sacrifice speaks of the lambs and points to the Lord. We know that. But in order for love to be bestowed on another person, there is always sacrifice. In this sense, I'm saying sacrifice in this respect, the setting aside of the best interest for me so that I can bestow what somebody else needs. That could be in one of those forgiveness things. It could be when you stop to take a meal to somebody who's in deep trouble and just needs some help. They just need some help. But you have to stop. The meal doesn't just appear. It doesn't get there on its own. You have to stop. You have to go out of your way. Every time we express love, we have to go to the place of sacrifice. In that place is the place where we comprehend. It is as we are living, rooted and grounded in that love that a wonderful thing happens. And what is that wonderful thing? We begin to comprehend together with all the saints. It's that together with the rest of the saints. What is the love of God? And then and I think I'm taking this from what he's going to say later on about the fullness of the Spirit, then we have the chance to testify to that. And as we testify to the love of God expressed towards us through the church, we then build up others and they begin to come so that together we are coming to a comprehension of the love of God. It's a tremendous prayer, right? Now Paul's talking about regular people. They're not all canonized saints. 
These are regular people who have come to Christ, who have all the same kinds of problems we have and same kinds of weaknesses we have. And yet he's going to pray for them, that, that God will so work in them by his Spirit so that love becomes the, the dominant characteristic of their experience together. Paul always understood that. Again, you've got 1 Corinthians chapter 13. There's faith and hope and love, but the greatest of those is what? Love. And he says that and he's, he's expressing why he's praying here. What? Because if I have everything else and don't have love, I am nothing. Nothing. Right? Make love your aim. Right? Do that. So he's going to pray for them. That's what God wants to do for us. He wants us to bring us into that because he does want us to know, his, to comprehend, to understand his love. But that, that comprehension, that understanding is going to primarily come to you and to me through the experience we have with other believers in the church. Now, what is the next step in it all? See, we're not finished. We're not even close to finished. But anyway, we're going we're gonna to get there. The next step is this, that what you... You might be filled up to all the fullness of God. You might be filled up to all the fullness of God. Isn't that something? I mean, I have a hard time even comprehending what that means in churches. Paul has has bold faith here. He's asking for regular people to come to a place where God can, can so dwell with them, that he fills them up. And that fullness has a, has a purpose here. And again, I want to go back to that Old Testament passage. Remember when the, we said already that when the fullness of God came down on Mount Sinai and the law was given, it caused enormous fear. You remember the, the story? People got done with it and said, listen, Moses, you go up, you get the law, bring it back down, tell us what he said. Don't we don't want to hear God talk anymore. We've had enough of that. It's so scary. I mean, we can't go through that. So you go up there. You deal with God. Bring it back to us. They were afraid. They withdrew from the whole comprehension of God. When the temple, when it was filled in the temple, all right, the glory of God fills that temple. It says the whole congregation bowed down and said, God is indeed good. And then they say, they say this, and this is the Old Testament expression of love, and his loving kindness is always there. It's permanent. It is never going to change. You see, when God filled up that temple, the comprehension that came by the Spirit to the people who watched this, this glory here was that God is really good. They comprehended the love of God. Okay, so that's the picture of the Old Testament. What's the reality in the New Testament? Well, that's what God intends. That's what he intends for his people. This is, this is the high calling. He intends to so work in us that as we are living there and learning the love of God, that people comprehend whether they're inside the church or they watch from the outside of the church. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. He's going to make it known in the place where that, that exists. Paul knows that. And so he is going to pray to God, not for little things for that church, but for the big things. He's already prayed that they might see, but now he's praying that the Spirit of God, not, not just 
Paul's force of language or wisdom or all the rest, but by the, by the work of the Spirit of God himself, he will come and move the hearts of those people to a place of faith and then move them to a place where they are enriched in his love so that he can then in, dwell among them in a manifest way. How about that? And what will happen to people who see that? They're going to comprehend the love of God. They're going to comprehend it. We have an enormous responsibility of the world around us. Just an enormous responsibility. And we could, we could organize missions and all the rest, but what's the point of organizing all the mission if the people who go into that mission aren't people of vital faith and actual love? If they're not there, how can the fullness be on it? How can the power of God rest on it? How can the revelation be brought through it? So Paul prays for what he considers to be the key thought. Now, is that overwhelming? I think sometimes you think, yeah, man, wow. The younger you are, the less overwhelming it'll be. By the time you've seen church for a long time, you think, oh, man, we're talking about real people here. And... I don't know. We bang our heads a lot on the way up here. Paul's got an answer for that one. Listen to this. <laughs> He's got bold faith. Because Paul, Paul's comp, uh, he, he understands certain things. Remember back at the very beginning, we said there were three things that Paul understood. It's, it's necessary if we're going to pray. He understands, first of all, that God is in control. That God has a plan. He's the, he, there is a plan. The second thing we have to know is what? God's working out that plan. And then if you're going to actually pray, you have to come to that third conviction that even though God's going to work out his plan, my praying has an effect on the outcome. It's incomprehensible how those two work together, but that's what Paul has to have. Now, Paul knows that it is the plan of God that the church be to his praise and glory. And, and that should start on this earth. And he knows that's the plan. And he knows God is, is doing a work. He started off the book by saying, I'm going to pray for you because I already see the work of God in you. And when I see that work, now I can pray that he'll finish the work. And that's what he's praying for here. But in, in verse 20, he says this, Now to him, he's going to, a doxology, a song of praise to God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power that works in us. First of all, he's able to do a whole lot more than you can even conceive of in his church. Now we think about the, him being able to do powerful things. I know, I, I've been there. The, our minds immediately move to moving mountains. Who cares about mountains? About predict, performing miracles. He's able to do... Well, that's what it's always applied, right? When there's a real difficulty. And here's what he's able to do that's way beyond what we can think. He's able to change you and he's able to change me way more than we think he can. Why is he able to do that? He's able to do it because the living Christ is our, now our life and the Spirit of God has come to us to reshape us. Now to him who's able to do way more, far abundant. Above it, way beyond all that we could ask or think, according to what? The power that works in us. That was the power that he asked in the first prayer that you would comprehend. 
that I would comprehend, that we would see how great resurrection power can affect, how much that can affect a human being. He wants him to understand that. And he says this, then here's his ultimate goal in all this. To him, that is to the Lord, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul knows where the plan is going. And he's not going to pray for anything less than this because that's what will glorify God. And he says two things here that glorify God. He'll be glorified in the church and in the Lord. That's amazing. It's not just that Jesus will be glorified through. He'll be glorified in the church. A couple weeks ago we were thinking about that that great truth that it is in the changing of individuals. It is the taking of something which was ruined and completely lost in its self-centeredness and reshaping it that will one day make the, whoever it is that observes this in the angelic world, will all say, what a great God because of that. Now, Paul wants to see that happen. He's dealing with real people who are in need of the work of God to get them there. And so what's he do? He knows where the plan of God is, and he's going to launch into, it's a brief prayer, but a potent prayer, that God would come and powerfully work in them. That the Spirit of God would come to their hearts and move them in those hearts. Finish the work that he started when the Lord came to live there and make them those who, by, who because of their faith, are ones that the Lord is, is pleased to dwell with. That's why, again, and I'm not here to try to just promote a work. I'm not saying that. But it is my number one concern as I think about the school that I work with is that we'll always remain in a place where our ultimate confidence is in Jesus Christ. It's easy to move from that. It's easy to move to other things, to people, to money, to buildings, to reputation, to anything. But only one thing really matters in this place, and that Jesus Christ be glorified, and that will only happen if we maintain a continuous confidence in who he is according to his word. We have to be jealous for that. Second thing, though, we have to do is what? If we're going to see the power of God here, if we're going to, to fulfill the purpose, we're going to have to love each other. How about that? We're going to have to enter in voluntarily into a place of the atmosphere of love, the powerful working of love. The Spirit of God can bring us there. He can bring us there. And if we will submit to that, and the Spirit of God does that, and we're no different than anybody else. This doesn't make us religious. This is what's available to human beings who love the Lord. It's available to every human being who loves the Lord. It is not exclusive to one group or another. He's not a respecter of persons. He doesn't care more about this school than he cares about any other place. All he's looking for is who will trust him. Remember a passage which Mr. Carroll used to preach on a lot that had the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. He might show himself strong on the behalf of the one whose heart's perfect towards him. And the thought there is he's just surveying the earth, looking for somebody to trust him. 
And if that person will trust him and put himself in his hands, he will be strong on his behalf. Now, here's the wonderful part. In the New Testament, by the Spirit, he comes and he starts to work in our hearts to produce that. That's what Paul is praying for here. But when he does that, then he has the great potential to pour out on that group his Spirit in such a way that he fills it up. And his beauty is there. And then out of that, what? Then there'll be glory to the, in the church and in the Lord forever and ever. It's tremendous prayer. Again, that's only the skim. That's the, that's the short version. But Paul prayed for big things. He prayed in a focused and an intentional manner. He knew the plan of God. And he addresses his prayers to see that the kingdom of God comes in the most powerful way. It's a wonderful thing to listen to and pray. And he can pray this way because he has a spirit of prayer. He's praying without ceasing and is in that that experience of praying without ceasing. He is conscious of who the Lord is and how he can trust him. So we need to ask ourselves how we can pray. You know, um, I'm going to ask you where you are. I'm going to ask you, are we praying? Are you praying for your own church? I would say those two prayers, I would encourage you to start praying on a regular basis for the fellowships in which you particularly are are involved. That God in that fellowship, in all of it, not just in a few here and there, but in that fellowship would give a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of who he is. And then in that same way that the Lord would come himself and give empower by his spirit in the inner men, in the hearts of those who are there, not some of them, all of them, to work there so that we might live, that that church might be a place where the Lord is at home because they're trusting him and at home because they love each other. And because of that, he fills it up and gives that powerful end, the point where people looking at it say, the Lord he is actually good. And the Lord's loving kindness never ceases. Okay, well, let's pray. Father, we come and ask you to receive our thanks for your great power. We thank you that you have made us complete in the Lord Jesus Christ and given us everything we need to fulfill your purpose. Oh, Lord, we would ask for powerful works of the Spirit of God in these days. Not external works, but those internal powerful works to open up our minds and empower our souls to trust you. And we come and trust you for it and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.